0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Tiffany Schlein about her films, about starting the Webby Awards, and about the growing presence of technology in our lives.
1: I think checking email and text, Twitter, all of it, it's so primal.
0: Here's Debbie Millman. Some people have a lot going on professionally, and when they get it all done, we admire their stick-to-itiveness. Other people have a crazy number of things going on, and when they get it all done beautifully, Without seeming to break a sweat, the rest of us are filled with wonder. Well, Tiffany Schlain fills me with wonder. She's an Emmy-nominated filmmaker. She's the founder of the Webby Awards and the co-founder of the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. She's a sought-after speaker, and she writes a newsletter called Breakfast at Tiffany's. She runs the Moxie Institute Film Studio and Lab and a nonprofit. Today, she joins me on Design Matters to talk about her career in technology and film and some of her recent projects. Tiffany Schlain, welcome to Design Matters. So great to be here. Tiffany, is it true you were introduced to the internet by Sting?
1: Yeah. I would have (laughs) never thought of it that way, but yeah, I I was working on a CD-ROM about Sting. I don't know if people remember CD-ROMs, but back in the day,
0: I don't know if people remember Sting. (laughs) Well, maybe your audience. (laughs) I know.
1: And I I was working on the CD-ROM and um, somebody said to me, you have to see this thing called the web because all these people all over the world are talking about how much they love Sting's music on this thing called the website. And I was just like, oh, this is going to change the world. And I have to back up because in high school, what year was this? Um, that was like 93, 94. Okay. And in high school, I was super into the Apple. I had like an Apple E and I got the first Mac and me and this other student from Iran in high school. She was from an enemy country. My family was from Odessa, you know, Russia, enemy country. And we were very good friends and we were both into computers. And we wrote this proposal called Uniting Nations in Telecommunications and Software. And from this one page proposal, we sent it to Barbara Boxer, who was the congresswoman in Marin County at the time. And from that, I got invited to the Soviet Union as a student ambassador out of high school to talk about the power of technology and computers connecting people. So that was in 88. So in 93, 94, when I saw that website, I was like, it's here. It's here. Before then, it's so hard for people to remember before the web. But I used to connect my Mac computer over a modem to the library. Right. And that was exciting. I remember that sound that used to happen. He'd be like... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So that Sting project, and I did work on... It was actually... That was a crazy project. But, I mean, I was a big fan of Sting, and I was like 24 and got to meet him in London, which was crazy. But... I didn't end up
0: finishing that project. <laughs> another, another story. Yeah. So you grew up in Mill Valley, California. You were the daughter of Carol Lewis Jaffe. Is that how you pronounce it? No, she's Carol Lewis. Just Carol Lewis. Okay. A psychologist and the late great surgeon, best-selling author, thinker, inventor, Leonard Schlein. Yeah. You've stated that when you were growing up, you had your very own Einstein and you called him dad. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be raised by Leonard Schlein?
1: Yeah, he was just a remarkable man, and um, both my parents—they're such curious people. And my mom, you know, in psychology, and my father, you know, in fourth grade, brought a uh, human brain and formaldehyde to my fourth grade class in an ice cream container, yeah, right? And, and ta- taught us all about the brain all the time, and. You know, he built a gigantic geodistic dome in our backyard with all the neighbors. And <laughs> um, he was really into Buckminster Fuller. And he was interested in psychedelics. And <laughs> he was just a brilliant, warm, loving, wonderful man that I miss so much. But he's with me in a a lot of other ways now, which I recognize as I get further away from him dying. But,
0: um, yeah, he was just um, one of these special creatures. I read that he was the first person to teach you how to look for connections and patterns in life. Can you elaborate how he did that? He loved to read and he loved to look at connections between disparate things.
1: So, you know, his first book was called Art and Physics, Parallel Visions in Space, Time and Light. And he was looking at how revolutionary artists and revolutionary scientists were often talking about the same ideas, but one with numbers and one with images. So, the famous painting of Magritte where the back of his face is on the front of his face was around the same time as Einstein was discovering the gravitational pull of a black hole. And they were the same ideas. One was with images and one was with numbers. And he goes all throughout history. The discovery of molecules was, you know, pontilism. And, you know, he just he goes all throughout history and saw these amazing connections. So he was always looking for connections in culture and science and history on what it means to be
0: human, I think, on the deepest level. He wanted you and your siblings to be doctors. He yes. he bought you and your sister the book "The Making of a Woman Surgeon" four times. Yes, four times. What happened to the previous I, he three kept copies? Delivering it and delivering it.
1: And I love you know I love science. I make a lot of films about science, but you know he really, really wanted us all to be doctors. And my brother, he is a doctor. My sister's a painter. And I make films interested in technology, but I make a lot of films about science and technology. So it's funny because I make a lot of films about the brain also. I think I've made like four films on the brain in different variations. So, you know, I'm just doing it in a different way, but I think interested in a lot of the same things
0: that he was. Did you ever consider becoming a surgeon? Was it ever in your purview?
1: You know, neurobiology is really interesting to me. I mean... As a filmmaker now, one of my favorite parts of making a new film is I get to learn all this science and stuff. And, but no, I never, I never thought that medicine was going to be my way to engage with the world. I mean, a lot of times when I'm making films, films are a way for me to process the world and understand the world more deeply, myself more deeply, how to contribute more deeply. So that's just the way I engage with it. But he also gave amazing talks. and Great um, visual. Yeah, and he would give talks and he would show all these images in rapid fire behind him. And they just didn't have the capability to show video back when he gave talks. But if you see his talks and you see my talks, they're very similar. But I have moving images behind me when I speak. But I think he was also a closet filmmaker. (laughs) I really do. I mean, he's such a great storyteller and he was so visual. And um,
0: every weekend we went to the movies, Chinese food, ice cream. We would just dissect the whole movie. Did you always know that you wanted to be a filmmaker? I know that you went to the University of California at Berkeley. Were you always intending to study film? No, I
1: really was. It wasn't an option. I did not think it was an option. Why? I mean, I think, you know, we're all from my grandparents are all immigrants and, you know, like work hard in America and make a living and that filmmaking wasn't the way you were going to do that. But and actually my first big fight with my father when I was at Cal UC Berkeley was that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I had one of those. Amazing teachers at Cal who I still invite to my screenings. We're still good friends. Who was that? Marilyn Fabe. And she had this infectious excitement about how technological advances in film would change the way we recorded reality and change reality and when the camera could move and all all these moments in history. And I was so excited about film being a way to make change in the world. So in high school it was the computer. That would connect ideas, and then in college it was well film is the way I'm going to do that. And I've eventually, after a very circuitous path, joined my marriage of the web and film together to make change. But um, you know, I had a big detour. Not <laughs> really a detour, but with the Webby Awards. But um, I, I think I've always been interested in what's the best way to explore the world and
0: move ideas through the world. Your first student film was titled Hunter and Pandora. It was an experimental film which won UC Berkeley's Eisner Award, which is the highest award in art at the school. Um, what was the movie about? I haven't been able to find it online. <laughs> I don't think it is online. I searched. Wow. Okay. That movie was
1: – you know, my background was experimental because Berkeley didn't have production. So that's – talk about constraint forcing you to be really creative. So there was no production at Berkeley. That's all at UCLA. So the way I would make movies is I would um, cut together old movies because I didn't have any facilities. So that was my greatest teacher. And my films today still are very collagey because that's how I learned how to make movies. But um, Hunter and Pandora is um, an experimental film, a love story about Hunter and Pandora. And I think like seven parts, (laughs) but it really has my experimental, you know, my films have a very experimental nature to them still even to this day. Yes. So um, that really came out of necessity.
0: Shortly after graduating college, you began working on your first feature film, a film called Zoli's Brain. But after three years, you put the unfinished film on hold. How come? Oh,
1: it was so ambitious. I had just graduated from Cal. You know, I had won this big award. I thought Spike Lee had just made Do the Right Thing on his credit cards. And I thought, I'm going to make a feature film. And it wasn't like a small feature film. It was was called Zoli's Brain, and it took place entirely inside of a sculptor's mind where all the metaphors in the mind were visualized. Like there was uh, critical thought editing rooms, people on editing tables editing out thoughts. And we shot on Alcatraz for where brain cells, like creative thoughts, were imprisoned and it was 40 locations, <laughs> 400 actors. It was Meshuggah. I mean,
0: Tiffany. basically... wow. It sounds like Inside Out.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of people said that, and also being John Malkovich when it came out. Now, I never finished this movie. I will someday. But I just kept running out of money, and I had too much pride to like go to my family. You know, I raised all the money myself. Everyone worked for free. And then my second or third time I ran out of money, actually working on that Sting CD-ROM was to get out of debt on Zoli's Brain. And then, like, the third time... I got really depressed. I mean, I, I kind of lost my vision for the project. I was broke. I had just been punched in the stomach by life. I was in my early 20s, which is a hard time anyways, sleeping on a friend's couch, feeling like a total failure that I had let everyone down who had worked for free for years on it and the people that did invest in it. I was such a difficult time for me and um, probably the most important part of my career. I mean, I th- I think back, I can taste that moment what I felt like. I mean, I was embarrassed to go out. I was worried what people were going to ask. Everyone was pressed about the movie. So wherever I went, people would ask me, how's the film coming? And I was inside, you know, I was depressed. About, how, how did you I had get a out of block. that?
0: Yeah. How, did, how do you pick yourself up after something oh, like that? God.
1: i I mean, now I know that. It's just as important to know when to stop something as when to keep going. And in my family, no one was quitters, you know. It's if everyone works very hard. And so I didn't think it was an option to quit that project. And I eventually did, which was an important step. And then I I took baby steps. I think that's how you get out of a creative block. And actually, I made a whole film about creative process because I was trying to – I think as I've gotten older, I understand that every film has that period. And now I know that it ends. (laughs) And I have strategies to get beyond that period. So I'll tell you what I do now is I usually always – every one of my films, even the shortest one – I mean maybe not the shortest, but you know, I've made 27 films. So a lot of them, they always have that period where I feel completely lost and I've lost perspective. That's what happens. You're in the editing room too long, you lose perspective. So now I have a group of you know advisors I've worked with for 20 years. Story editor, they all look at and give me notes. I'll, I also step away from the project. This year on the adaptable mind, which I know you just premiered, I was stuck on the ending, and um, my husband and I went to Burning Man, and I just did a rough cut screening in the desert and had a total insight. And I had to get away from my life to do that, so I have now built in these practices so that won't happen. What happened when I was in my early twenties? I don't get as worried because I go, okay, I've it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> I know, I okay, this is that feeling and doubt and dread and insecurity, and I'm going to climb my way
0: out of it. What made you decide you were ready to take another risk after?
1: I did small projects. I, I small, and I kept building up until I got really big again with the Webby Awards. But to, before, between Zoli's brain and the, and the Webby Awards, I was taking on smaller projects and building my confidence back. And that was just an instrumental period in my career because I, I fell hard young, <laughs> and um, so all of the things that have happened since then, I'm incredibly grounded. It was very humbling to fail so publicly at such a young age.
0: I read that that three-year <laughs> ordeal made you appreciate every success after that big oh. and small in a way that you never would oh, have. Yeah. I think I... heartbreak does that.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, or losing someone. Mm-hmm. I feel like my sense of gratitude of life is just infinitely more deep since I lost my father because I just like, you just never know. And you have to – you just have to live life in a very complete day. I mean even I had this day in New York and normally I'm over scheduled in New York. And I was walking – I went to two great exhibits and I was just like, oh, I'm so grateful for this day because I just – you feel it more intensely when you've had pain.
0: Yes, absolutely. What made you decide to start the Webby Awards? How did that happen? I read that you, that you said that you were – Grateful to have had the opportunity to start. And I was wondering how that opportunity came to be.
1: Yeah, because, you know, life happens because a lot of people believe in you. I mean, hopefully your parents did. If that didn't happen, hopefully you have mentors that said, you know, I believe in you. So from Zoli's brain, I kept, you know, crawling out of debt and I was taking smaller projects and I was the design director of the Web Central Station, which was for the Web Magazine, which was a magazine way before its time. It was, the it was, you know, right around the time of Wired. But, I was going to say, was it the
0: Wired before Wired?
1: It was like right around that period. And we're all within blocks of each other. And a lot of my friends worked at Wired. It was just this very special time in San Francisco. I did this website for the magazine called Web Central Station. And the publisher said, you know, I don't have a budget, but we own the Webby Awards trademark. And... Could you create something? And I'm like, no budget. I'm an independent filmmaker. <laughs> I know what to do with that. And I was obsessed with the web already. And I wanted to tell everyone out about it anyways. So for me, it was such a creative challenge because I hate award shows. Really? Yeah. I find them Why? so... The model of them. I should say that I always find the model so stifling. Or You know, they've gotten a lot more edgy, some of them. But at the time, they were so – the acceptance speeches, I was always so worried people were going to forget. To thank the right person, I'm there going, like, don't forget to thank your partner or your – you know. And so we made um, – we had the first MC with Cintra Wilson, who was great. And we had this five-word acceptance speech rule, which no one has broken. And we're at our 20-year anniversary. But, um, you know, the publisher – saw my work with web designing an early website and knew my producing skills and gave me a chance. So I'm one of those people. I still think my film teachers and my credits because I think that's a really key to don't ever forget the people that gave you a chance. And, you know, I was able to run with it and I raised sponsorship money and I got to really – rethink an award show. So we did all these experimental films and we had really edgy entertainers. I mean, my MCs were like Mark Maron, Alan Cumming. Um, I got to really play with the model of an award show and the constraint of the five words became this incredibly creative part. And we were able to honor the pioneers of the web in a really unusual way. And it was just this zeitgeist moment in San Francisco. I mean, the 90s, the first boom you know, I was in my 20s, and I remember when the Google guys rollerbladed onto the stage, and Mayor Giuliani tried to bring the Webbys to New York. And there was it was a bidding
0: war. It was a
1: crazy period of my life. It was exciting. What made you decide to sell the Webbys? One thing about an award show, it, it, creatively, like, I was always trying to rethink it. And there was a certain point where I was like, I want to go back to filmmaking combined with the power of the web. So while I was doing the Webby Awards, Bush got into office. And one of the first things he did was cut international family planning. And I was so pissed off that he did that. And, you know, he had grown up with stories of my father that would help women with botched abortions. And my mother, who was my, – both my parents were strong feminists. And I had made all these films for the Webby Awards. So er, introducing each show, I would make, like, experimental film. So I went to Planned Parenthood. I said, I want to make a short experimental film that's funny that will reach my generation about reproductive choice. And they were like, "Uh, okay, (laughs) you go do that. Let's see what you can do with that. (laughs) So I made this film called Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness. And all the Planned Parenthood showed it on the 30 year anniversary. I wish the film wasn't still relevant today. And it got into Sundance. And that was so exciting because here I was going on this filmmaking path then did the Webbys and then made this side project. And and when I saw the power of this short film combined with the web—and you have to remember, video was just starting to be shown on the web. And I thought, I need to combine my loves of film combined with the web to make change. So I was also pregnant. you know, I had my first child, and I thought, I don't want to work as hard as—I I was working so hard on the webbies. And it was just insane hours to do an event, and you're always one-upping yourself every year. So I thought, how do I scale and Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, it still shows today and doesn't need me, whereas the Webbies always needed that energy every year. So I started a film studio, and we've made you know a whole bunch of films that really look at the intersection of culture, technology, humanity. So I, it's really fun to combine those loves.
0: So at this point, you're now focusing on making documentaries yeah. and doing experiments and engaging people on social change with social change. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to talk about your filmmaking style. How would you describe it?
1: It's it's unusual. I mean, whenever people say, "Oh, do you make documentaries?" and I'm always like, uh, "Kinda." <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like a lot of my films. I'm almost i doing like cinematic essays.
0: The very, very visual collage-y, I think, was a great word. Right, and that really
1: came from me not being able to go to film school, but loving Cal. So I never regret that. I never regret that decision because it forced me to have this unique voice out of necessity. But the style um, is—I do a lot of animation. I work with great animators, but a lot of times I'm trying to articulate ideas that don't exist. So I spend a lot of time on animation. I search for archival images. That's my favorite thing to do. I'm working on the script with my co-writers. And and for me, finding the right image that's not an expected image but will take the idea further is very exciting to me. It feels like you do a lot of
0: recontextualizing.
1: And associative. But, you know, our show, uh, The Future Starts Here, was nominated for this Emmy Award in a new category they added. And the title of the category was the first category that ever felt like it fit for me, which is it was like new approaches in arts – Culture and lifestyle. It's just an unusual approach. I'm not interviewing people. Ultimately, what you see on the screen is a visual journey of a thought process or
0: exploration. Let's talk about connection. Your first feature documentary yeah. is titled Connected: an autoblogography about love, death, and technology. The story of this film really begins in 2008, despite the fact that the film came out in 2011. In 2008, your father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. You also found out after having five miscarriages, you were pregnant again. So you started to create this film. Nine months after you found out about your dad's cancer, he died. And the experience is one of the themes of Connected. I read that your film is an attempt to understand our world, where we came from, and where we're headed. Mm -hmm. In what way would you say that the film is an attempt to do that?
1: Well, originally, when I was making it, my father was a co-writer, and I thought, great, we're going to collaborate on a film together, and we're going to understand the world better together, and we're going to take this journey from the Big Bang to the future. That was the plan. And And that's really what the movie is as well. It starts with the Big Bang. It does. And then I was making that movie, and it was all about connectedness, connectedness with biology and technology and geography and all the different ways we're connected. And how can we extrapolate out all the technological connectedness and where where is that taking us? And then my father, you know, one of my best friends was diagnosed with brain cancer. And I remember being in the editing room and watching a cut of the movie, a rough cut, a two-hour rough cut. I had that same sinking feeling that I had with Zoli's brain, but however many years later, I watched the movie, I thought, I'm not feeling emotionally connected to this film. And it dawned on me, I was making a film about connectedness, and I wasn't at all dealing with emotional connectedness. It was all in the head. I wasn't in the heart at all. It was all left brain. And it was this moment where I realized, I need to enter the movie. Like, here I'm losing one of my most profound connections, which is my father and... Uh, I'm not talking about that. So the film, oh, it was such... I remember going to the story editor and calling my investors. and like, the movie's changing. <laughs> and we essentially took the movie apart. And we there was like the intellectual journey of humanity. And then there was my journey. And we made two separate movies. And then with the help of a story editor who's wonderful, we linked them together. And the moments when my own personal story and the larger story of humanity clicked were like my favorite moments in the movie. And I do believe that when you speak your truth, you're speaking to some universal truth. It was the first time I ever narrated part of a movie. You know, Peter Coyote. I've always had a lot of male famous narrators. And I remember saying, I, I need to narrate the part that I'm feeling. And that was a very empowering moment as an artist, just to go... I should be speaking my own thoughts.
0: And those are my favorite parts of the movie, actually. Oh, interesting,
1: Yeah, because it goes back and forth between him and me. And, you know, now I only narr- I narrate all my own movies. But that was a real turning point just as a filmmaker to just go, I want to get closer to what I'm saying and what I'm thinking is me.
0: And I need to own that. Well, you begin the film by talking about visiting a friend that you hadn't seen in a very long time.
1: I just spoke to her today.
0: And and how you're sitting, catching up in a restaurant, and all of a sudden you start feeling that you need to, that you must look at your phone. You don't want to do that because you haven't seen this friend in a while, so you fake- going to the bathroom. You fake Come on, need have going you to the ever bathroom. Done that? Oh my god, I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I loved it so much. I'm like somebody else does oh. that too. So so what happened next? You go into the stall, you're looking at your phone oh, and then just, this movie comes out of
1: you. <laughs> yeah, it's like what am I doing? Well, it made me think a lot of I mean, listen, when you when you lose someone and you know the time scale, time takes on this alternative universe of meaning. In and, what way? Oh, just It's all about how we spend our time. Okay. Since my father died, my husband and children and I, we do something called technology Shabbat. So we turn off all screens Friday night to Saturday night. And we're on our sixth year of doing it, exactly the amount of time my dad's been gone. Um, And it's changed my life. And I think it's the best thing creatively I've ever done. It's the best thing as a mother, as a wife, as a person, just to have a day. I'm not on screens once a week. For six years. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper for me. And I I think a lot about Einstein's theory of relativity and his sense of time because what that theory is all about is that time is relation to the way you move in space. And on technology, we are speeding things up so much because we're like buzzing all around the Internet and our emails and Twitter and this and that. And um, it's speeding up our sense of time. And so when I turn off the screens with my family on Friday nights, time slows down. And it's the most delicious day of my life, of my week. Because what's the one day of the week you want to feel long is Saturday anyways. And my husband and I still joke like, oh, what time is it? Oh, it's only 9 a.m. And we've been up for hours, but it's just this very stretched out sense of time. Did it take some time to go through any kind of technological withdrawal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and in fact, usually on Friday nights, I keep a big Sharpie. And I have a lot of – I like writing in Sharpie. I like the smell and I like the way it writes. But I always keep a lot of Sharpies around. I have a Sharpie and a pad of paper. And usually Friday night, I'm getting thoughts out of my head just so they're somewhere. And then after about an hour and a half into it, it stops and I'm just present. But yeah, the – feeling i get when i'm in it is so beautiful like there's there is no doubt in my mind that it's helped me gain perspective appreciate things i mean in fact with movies my true understanding that i need to step away from films at certain moments is my feeling with Shabbat, and I'm not. I should also say I'm not a religious person. Most people assume I am if I say I celebrate Shabbat.
0: Do you celebrate all of the other tenets of Shabbat? Do you not cook and no. not work? And okay. I have a
1: I have a Shabboskoy texture. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I mean I I'm very deeply culturally Jewish. I love having a feast every Friday night, inviting our friends and no screens. I love. I mean, I think Shabbat is perhaps the most beautiful aspect of Judaism to me, that there's this day where you don't do anything and you just spend time with your family and you read and friends. And I think it's a beautiful tradition.
0: I learned a lot seeing connected. For example, I did not realize, and of course it makes perfect sense, but I didn't realize that we are the only species that knows that we're going to die yeah. and how driven we are by that knowledge. Yeah. And I think that having these Shabbats yeah. gives you the opportunity to appreciate life. Yeah. But it is really remarkable that we are the only species that knows, and it it really does keep us so future focused. Yeah. I also learned that the brain contains one hundred million neurons, and that we have seventy thousand thoughts a day. Seventy thousand. Yeah. I also so there's so many things. This movie is so wonderful. I can't Thank say enough you. good things about this movie. I I, I knew that we love dopamine, the chemical <laughs> in our brain. I didn't know how much we love it. Yeah. Um. So it's the chemical in the brain that makes us feel good, and we do things that provide dopamine over and over and over again. So what does checking email or or looking it at gives the screen, you a hit? It gives wh- you a hit. Why? Why does it? Is it because somebody wants you or needs you? Or I think
1: checking email is like the most and and text the Twitter all of it. It's so so primal. That's actually what I got to from Connected is that our need to check our phone and see if someone's retweeted us or texted us or emailed us,
0: that is about wanting to feel loved and feeling connected. But it's not something that really satiates us. No, I
1: know. That's the irony is that it does give you a dopamine hit. You know, dopamine is called the love drug. I mean, it's the hormone that um, when you're breastfeeding, you're flooded with it when you're in love it makes you feel good and it also makes you want to collaborate and i've often thought about all these collaborative businesses that are starting all over the
0: WeWorks know. and yeah, all of that. them yeah. and
1: um is that on the rise because we're all flooded with dopamine <laughs> you know the airbnbs that this want to share and do things together and i mean that's on an optimistic day on my pessimistic day i walked down the street in new york and everyone in the most unflattering position as possible, which is like the crouched neck and it hold it so close. And sometimes I feel like I'm in a scene of like invasion of the body snatchers <laughs> yes. when everyone's like been possessed and you're the only one looking up and everyone's looking down. You're like, what is going on? It's so crazy. I really straddle the good, the bad and the potential. And it feels like there's a lot of, you know, there's books. Where it's either – technology is destroying civilization or it's going to save civilization, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm like, there's a lot of good. There's some bad stuff that we should talk about so that we can be more mindful and conscious about it. And there's the potential which we can shape. And, I, and techn- it's just an extension of us. We've created all these tools that are, you know, Marshall McLuhan talks about. They're just extensions of our capabilities. So they're doing what we want to do, which is connect. And there's all these new inverted ways to do that.
0: So, with the amount of crouching that we're doing in front of our phones and the yeah. amount of time we're holding them up to our heads, you talk in connected about how that radiation might be impacting us, and you wonder if one day we'll look back at this time and see us culturally in the same way that we do smoking. And do you think that that's possible? Do you think I that do, there's something I do, and really I, dangerous? I was a smoker. I was too,
1: yeah, and I loved it, Me and too. I smoked a lot, you know, I quit a long time ago, though, but I do worry i I use my earbuds, and you know, my father got his tumor right in the same place that he held his phone, and I just feel like we're holding very, very low levels of radiation with the phone, but use an earbud, and I do think we're we're very excessive with the way we're using, i mean. I remember in the 70s, I would watch so much TV. I mean, there was like Three's Company, like trashy television. This yeah. is not intellectual television. It's like, and everyone used to say, oh, it's going to turn your mind to mush. And it didn't turn my mind to mush. It didn't turn all of us that grew up in that era. Now I watch television in a very judicious way. I watch good shows. I'm not just like sitting there. And I think we are sucking up and devouring all of this technology too much. And I think we're going to look back and be like, oh, look it. We're all like – You know, I was the crouching tiger hidden. There's got to be a riff on the crouching tiger with the crouching phone. And and actually, um, ultimately, we don't think in a linear way. And we finally created a work environment that mirrors our stream of consciousness, which is that our mind is constantly going in a million directions.
0: 70,000 thoughts a day.
1: Right. And now we've created the tool to look up those thoughts or write to the person you're thinking of for a second. And so... There's bad and there's good there. I mean, um, I'm super interested in the neuroscience of daydreaming. I made a film about it recently. How your most creative thoughts happen when you're in free form, when you're not in a structured way and you're letting your mind play. I uh, think we're living in an experiment that we are creating. (laughs) No one's doing it to us. We, we We need to feel more empowered that we can turn things off, too. That's what this Tech Shabbat has taught me. This practice has taught me. That you need to feel empowered that you can turn it off. And I think too many people are so glued to it that they can't exist without it. And they need to rise up and kind of evolve beyond that.
0: Yeah. you. you there's a map at the beginning of Connected that very surprisingly to me had the word consumption at the center. Yeah. You let us know in the movie that humans consume on average – 195 pounds of stuff every day. We also dig up the equivalent of 112 Empire State Buildings each day to make stuff. What do you think the ramifications of all this stuff has on our connectedness? Hmm.
1: Well, here's the thing. Soon everything will have, you know, the Internet of Things is a concept where all of the things are talking to each other through chips and So I think it'll be very powerful when you really understand the cause and effect of all the things that you buy. When you bought that inexpensive shirt, you could actually like scan it and look up, well, where was this made and what child labor? I mean, would you really want to buy it if you knew all of that and really saw the faces of the kids working on that shirt? So the connectedness of the technology to really show you the path of consumption, I think, will be more and more powerful If we choose to look there, I mean, I, I, I do believe in humans and I believe we're constantly evolving with all these new tools we're creating. So I think if we continue to talk about and wrestle with some of this stuff that we will evolve to a better place. Like I just saw this tweet today of somebody saying, you know, when I grew up, I was eating, um, Wonder Bread and Ding Dongs and whatever. And we didn't think twice about it. And just the consciousness around eating. We're evolving. I grew up on Wonder Bread. And now what we're feeding our children and the mindfulness that goes into that. Actually, I'm not not into the word mindfulness anymore. Can I tell you the new word that is much more exciting to me? It's called metacognition. And it's... It's thinking about thinking, metacognition. And it's, it's got more teeth than the word mindfulness, which I know, I, even as I said it, it annoyed me because it's overused. And... Well,
0: you heard it here first on Design Matters, metacognition. <laughs> metacognition. <laughs> Let's talk about your, your, one of your most recent films, The Adaptable Mind. Oh. What I love about your films, Tiffany, is that you're entertained and you learn and you're inspired all at the same time. And there oh, are very few you. people that can do that. But I learned that the brain is an amazing, resilient thing. And I also didn't realize that we begin as humans to sense the motives and feelings of others when we're about five Mm -hmm. and that this grows over the course of a life. Mm -hmm. Talk about The Adaptable Mind. What was the reason for making this particular movie and and how would you describe it to people?
1: Yeah, it's 11 minutes. (laughs) I always like to frame my films in length. I don't know why, but I feel like and it. Uh, That film was really hard to make, but I'm really excited about it now. But it was a tough one because we wanted to explore all the research and ideas around what are the skills you need to flourish in the 21st century. What should we be focusing on in school and in life to flourish? And uh, there's all these different schools of thought, and they have all these different terms. It's actually it's fascinating because they they don't agree. Non-cognitive, cognitive.
0: cognitive, uh, Metacognitive. (laughs) uh,
1: There's so much language around and really interesting research around what do you, you know, in school, the school reform movement and character education and what do you need to focus on? So we looked at all the research and we thought, what are the unifying elements of all this research? We saw that there was five elements So we created our own list, which we thought was kind of ironic that we were like trying to condense and distill the list with another list. Um, (laughs) But a lot of my films have the title of brain in them. But mind is much more open to me because it taps into, even though the brain does control all emotions and everything, but mind to me kind of taps into bigger ideas. And actually the visual metaphor in the film, which I spent a lot of time on and I I love the way it turned out just because it was a lot of pain to get there, but um, is that the mind is as expansive as the universe. So we use a lot of visuals of skyscapes to show the mind. So to me, I guess the adaptable mind is about the incredible qualities and flexibility and expansiveness that we all have. And at the same time, my husband, Ken Goldberg, is a professor of robotics We've been having a lot of conversations because there's so many op-eds and books and articles about how robots are going to take over the world, which we do not believe is going to be the case. And we talk about it a lot. He's always like, this is ridiculous. If you were in my lab, you would understand that robots are not going to take over humans anytime soon and probably never. (laughs) And he always envisions a collaborative relationship with robots and automation and humans. So I also was trying to speak to that fear. There's a lot of fear Mongering in general in our society, and to remind people the incredible adaptability and suppleness of the human mind.
0: You quote the psychologist Howard Gardner in the film and state that creativity is a liberating human energy. Yeah, I think that's one of the best definitions of creativity I have ever heard. I just got children's It's such
1: a great way to describe it, and and for that line, I found this amazing slow motion shot of popcorn being popped, and I thought, Oh awesome. yes, <laughs> I love popcorn just because I'm you know going to the movies all the time. So popcorn is just a conduit for the butter, really. But I I judge <laughs> a the theater, salt. I judge the theater on its popcorn. So when I saw that shot, and I, I when I read that idea, I was like. That is it. It's unleashing. It's unleashing us, our human potential.
0: (laughs) So the things that you believe that the adaptable mind needs to flourish now are curiosity, creativity, taking initiative, multidisciplinary thinking and empathy. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how empathy levels have dropped substantially in our culture now. How can we bring them back? Eye contact. Eye contact. Interesting. <laughs> it's so
1: simple. <laughs> well, I mean, even uh, – yeah, I mean, this goes down to our faces down all the time. I mean, really looking people in the eye, it's rare. When you really talk to someone and look – the way we're doing we're looking each other in the eye, it's so different. A lot of people don't do that as much anymore. And also, there's probably a lot of people that you interact with every day. day—the person that gives you your coffee or doorman or whatever and really – taking a moment to understand who they are and their story and imagining what life would be like in their shoes. And I I think that is something we can always work more to do more of. I think some of our bigger issues in this country have to do with empathy. I think that empathy is something you have to work at, which I don't think people think about. And it's like a muscle. You've got to work at it. And uh, I think it would be a great thing for people to focus
0: on more you have a wonderful line in connected which i think is a is a nice way to end the show you state that we think of the mind as private with solo thinking but it is as important to collaborate yeah and and i think that that's one of the best results of living an empathetic life is is having that true meaningful collaboration yes Tiffany, thank you so much for being on Design oh, Matters this today. so wonderful. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much. To find out more about Tiffany Schlain and her amazing, amazing films and projects and talks, go to moxieinstitute.org. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.